Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Tea and Cake, a 15-minute chat with some of the leading experts, creators and collectors in antiques, vintage clothing and knickknacks, with me, Tommy Lloyd Baker. This month we kickstart with the lady whose books got me into antiques and all things old, the infamous Judith Miller. In 1979, Judith co-founded the international bestseller Miller's Antiques Price Guide that she is so well known for today. She has lectured at the V&A, Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., writes regularly for the Financial Times Weekend Supplement, the Scotsman magazine, and for the BBC's magazine, Homes and Antiques. In 1997, she joined as a regular expert on the Antiques Roadshow, where she has been an established face ever since. She is also a keen Bruce Springsteen fan. I started off the interview by asking her, do you remember the first antique you ever bought? Yes, I do. I was growing up in the Scottish borders. Um, quite interestingly, in terms of the antiques roadshow, most of the specialists in antiques roadshow grew up with mm. antiques, and I didn't. Yeah. My parents were part of what we affectionately call the Formica generation. They got rid of everything, and my mum used to tell me that not only did she get rid of everything, but in those days she paid people to come and take it away. So I actually grew up now we're looking back on it, it's mid-century modern, that was what I grew up with. And if you'd asked me when I was 12 years old what I was going to be, I would have said a history teacher. And I still love history. And so I started going to just little junk shops mm-hmm. in the Scottish borders and Gannishills. And I remember one day I was looking at all these old saucers and plates, and one just caught my eye, it had Chinese decoration on it. and. I asked how much it was, and I remember the dealer saying, oh, just take it. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, to him at that time, it would be in the 60s, it had absolutely no yeah. value. And then I started to try and find out about it, and it was very, very difficult if people look back to the 60s and the 70s. If you were a good student like I was, because I went on to study history at Edinburgh University, and you went into libraries, but these things you could pick up in junk shops, mm-hmm. they weren't picture of them, there was no photographs of them in books, so you had to, you know, you had to find other ways of finding out. And a friend once said to me, well, what you need to do is go to an auction, get an auction catalogue, and you'll be able to see the things, and also get the descriptions. And so that's when I started going to auctions. And by then I was pretty hooked. Did you find your degree in history helps the kind of passion? I think it helps the passion. I don't think, I think it's very, very difficult, and people are writing to me all the time saying, how can I get into antiques? Mm -hmm. It's still a very difficult area to get into, because there are now, I met some people at the NEC Antiques for Everyone, who are actually doing doing degrees or postgraduates in antiques at the University of Lancashire. But it's very difficult to say, how do you get in? I think history helps. Lots of people write to me wanting jobs and things, done fine art degrees, and although I think all of these things help a bit, there's nothing better than actually handling the thing. And a lot of colleagues on the Antiques Roadshow started off as porters and auction mm. houses, but you know that's not, you know they don't take on that many. But I think all these background things, I think you have to have a passion for the past to be a collector. It doesn't matter how far the past is, you know, but it's you know you've got to be passionate about something. I always say to people, if you go collect something. Like something you love. Do you think that comes from as well, like from your family's background and what they kind of inherit? Because I know for me as a collector on like 1960s, my house is full of Moorcroft and I, I think my mum kind of pulled, uh, like forced me almost to collect something as well. I don't know, actually, not for me. They were very interested in, as were many people, I mean, my father had been in the war and I think a lot of people coming back from the war and having gone through the, you know, the austerity 
um, people wanted bright colours. So I think that was there in my, in, in my growing up. And it's interesting, my children are not really collectors either. So in 1979, you published the Miller's Antiques Price Guide that you're so well known for today. Um, did you ever think it would be the massive success it was? Uh, no, I didn't. I mean, really, the idea was to publish a book that I needed. You know, if, if you look back to 79, it was very, very difficult to get a ballpark figure for what something, what you should pay for something or what mm -hmm. something was worth. And I just really needed that because I was interested, because I'm not a, a singular collector. So I was looking at porcelain, I was looking at glass, I was looking at tree wooden objects. And it was just that, you know, is it George, is it Victorian? Also, is it going to cost me a lot of money or is it affordable? So, and interestingly, I mean, the roadshow was started just a bit before that. And at that time, I remember phoning up some of the papers to say I was publishing this, this new book. And they went, oh no, antiques. And so it was quite difficult to say, no, this is a general book for the general public. But by about, third, by about 1984, I mean, it was selling a phenomenal number of mm. books in the UK, and then in the US, mm -hmm. and then Australia. And then we started doing foreign editions too, French and German. So oh, really? It's, oh. And Hungarian. You know, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Did that fuel any of your personal collections when you started looking more into antiques? Oh, it's cost me a fortune. Because as soon as I go along and spend three days with Jeanette Hayhurst talking about 18th century drinking glasses, they're not <laughs> 18th century drinking glasses. As soon as I've, when I've, done, I've done three books now on costume jewellery, and it's cost me a fortune. Because every time I've gone on the photo shoot, you know, you become interested in... And, and especially because if you are interested in antiques, if you're interested in, you know, say, costume jewellery, if you spend some time with some dealers, you know, they will impart a lot of knowledge, mm -hmm. and they will, they, because they can see you as a potential customer, you know, mm -hmm. as well as the fact that they're really interested. Yeah, of course. So I think that's, you know, I've been very lucky. Um, what's your main collection? Well, my main collection is still ceramic. Luckily, I bought Chinese ceramics a long time ago, so I don't buy any more at the moment. Um, I've got 18th century English Delft, I've got 18th century English porcelain, I've got 19th century English porcelain, <laughs> I've got quite a bit of 20th century, um, I've got some pool. Um, Is it all uh, spaced out in your house? Yes, in fact my young, youngest son's girlfriend is German, who was brought up in a minimalist house, said to me, why do you have all this stuff? Because, you know, I have my glass collection in the front room, so I have, um, I started collecting Monarch. Mm -hmm. many years ago just because it's Scottish mm -hmm. and it was also very affordable because it's a bit kitsch and I've got a vast collection of um, Robert Stead Wilson candlestick the Sheringham candlesticks in all the different colours my, <laughs> my, my husband keeps thinking they breed but actually it's an eBay habit um, and my trains it's, and my furniture and, and but I like to mix and match I mean, in my front room I have a Queen Anne Warner armchair and in the other I have a Philip Stark, Lord Yeo armchair, because I think that they actually are more interesting. Of course. If you had a pair of either, you wouldn't really mm. notice them. You're quite well known for your jewellery. Costume jewellery is much um, more amusing, more interesting. Um, my Joseph of Hollywood brooches with the sort of moving eyes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get comments on those. I mean, I'll go into Starbucks to get a coffee, and mm -hmm. somebody will say, oh my god, that's, that's amazing, that pin, you know. Mm. It's just a really well-designed thing. It's, you know, there's no precious metal, there's no precious gems, but it's actually a very well-designed piece. Mm. Do you have a most impressive piece in your collection? Um, the most valuable is probably my Trafari poinsettia pin, 
um, which was designed by Alfred Philippe. And it's a beautifully designed piece. Um, he'd, he'd worked for Van Cleer and Arcos, and he, he'd used this design using rubies and diamonds. And then when he went to Trafari, he used glass. But it's still incredibly well designed. But my favourite piece would definitely be my Joseph of Hollywood um, moon pin with ruff, right, which I wear a lot and mm -hmm. recognise you know, because I do wear it. Mm. Have you got a piece that holds the most sentiment for you? Actually, it's it's precious jewellery. Um, I've got a, a 1920s sapphire, small sapphire diamond bracelet that my husband gave to me, which I love. I think mean, it's just a beautiful, mm. beautiful thing. But it's actually, and also, um, uh, my son was quite young. He went with my husband to this um, costume jewellery specialist who are friends of ours, and he bought me a Leah Stein fox pin. And mm. he was so pleased that he chose it as himself, <laughs> and, and so that's got sentiment. Of course, yeah. Um, so in 1997, you joined the Antiques Roadshow mm. as a regular expert, and that was in its then 18th year. Was that a big pressure for you? Um, no, in fact, the pressure came way before that because they kept asking me to come onto the program. Oh, really? Um, and I desperately wanted to, but I was, I'd been incredibly busy, and it's quite a Vantage Roadshow is quite a commitment. Of course it is. And because I do a lot of work in America, I do a lot of lecture tours in America. So, although I desperately wanted to join it because I think it's the most fantastic program, but then um, in 97, a friend of mine, Simon Shaw, who I've known for years and worked with on television before, he took over as producer. Mm -hmm. And he just went up and said, I'm not taking no for an answer, you know, just yeah. go to it. And even if you do two programs, that'll, that'll be fine. And so I went on it, loved it, and of course all the other specialists I've known for years, mm -hmm. and a lot of them were very close friends, and it was really lovely doing it. So of course immediately I wanted to do as many as I of could. Of course, yeah. So I do Almost got hooked. Oh, yeah, yes, I did. <laughs> and it's, you know, it is a lot of work, because on the day, you know, however many people turn up, we will see. Yeah. So there are usually sort of 27 specialists. We can get 5,000 people. Wow. And, you know, so you'll start at half eight in the morning, you might finish at half eight at night, because you have mm. to see everyone. Um, but it's just great fun because you genuinely don't know what you're going to see next. Of course. No idea. I mean, somebody comes along, and it's really funny. Somebody will pull something out of their bag, and, and it's not worth very much money. Mm -hmm. They're not even very old. And then the next minute, they're bringing out something that's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So you just never know. Yeah, it always changes. I yeah. suppose that's kind of the beauty with it, though. Well, it is. I mean, it's such a clever format, and they don't muck about with it mm. too much because people love it. I mean, you know, we get six to seven million viewers on a Sunday night, that's an incredible number. Um, but it's just, a, I mean, I think it's just an interesting program. Yeah, so you've lectured at the V&A, you've lectured at the Smithsonian in Washington DC, you write regularly for various magazines and newspapers. Yes. What's next? I'm just about to start filming the next series of the Antiques mm -hmm. Show, so I've got um, about eight of those to film. And we've got Bruce Springsteen coming mm -hmm. to Europe <laughs> so we shall be uh, going <laughs> See to Munich and Milan and Paris. touring all over. Mm. Do you tour all over to see Bruce Springsteen? Well, we go. We don't. I mean, we, we actually just go. But, but what we try to do, because my younger son is really interested too, what we try and do is actually go to you know go to Milan uh -huh. and do the cathedral, oh, okay. galleries, go to yeah. museums, tie it into so, our holidays. Yeah, so, yeah, we just have a, you know a long weekend. Yeah, nice. City, maybe a city we haven't been to before and work out all the places yeah. we want to see and also of course go to antique shops. So you've seen the times change a lot um, with I suppose eBay coming yeah. in, um, as you say apps, ebooks. Yeah. Does that scare you slightly? 
No, I find it fascinating. I find it absolutely. My husband says when he first met me, I was like writing longhand with a fountain pen. Mm -hmm. I now have a multi-relational database. I'm constantly, mm -hmm. I'm constantly interested by the possibilities. I think that's the worst thing. I, I think the antique trade had to get their heads around mm -hmm. because the worst thing is to stick in the mud and say, no, I don't want to do this. You know, you've yeah, got to adapt. You've got to adapt. It's like to you know fashion changing. If you're a dealer in brown furniture, mm -hmm. then you had to sort of change a bit of because course. nobody was buying it. So, you know, you had to look at the fact that, you know, mid-century modern was in mm -hmm. and you have to adapt. And we've mm -hmm. adapted our books in the same way. I mean, our my price guide and handbook now is very different to the ones I used to produce mm -hmm. in that I think and somebody told me this the other day and I've now got this saying that what people now want is curated content. Mm -hmm. They want a book, not just a price guide. But they want me to say why something is worth more than something mm -hmm. else, what's really special about something. Mm -hmm. So there's far more text in the book now, mm -hmm. quite short amounts of text. Mm -hmm. it's not there's text little fact files, isn't yes, there now, for people right. that don't know, there's little fat files that tell you about either the designer or blog exactly. blog that go into it. Exactly. So in a, in a little nutshell, you can yeah. get, find out you know, who was Sotsas or who, yeah. you know, who was Chippendale. You know, it, of course. It just, so you could, you could get that and find out sort of what period they were mm. in. And I think that's really important. So I think you know, with new technology, you have to adapt to it. And, and it makes my life a lot easier. It, say if I wanted to, say if I decided this afternoon that I thought I should do a book on Reni Lalique, mm -hmm. I can go into my database and it will pull up mm. all the Reni Lalique we have, hundreds of images. It will then order them for me, whether I want mm -hmm. them by date or by pattern name. So actually, that would have taken me months. Yeah, to just go through all the books the and the files. So, you know, I think you've just got to be excited by it. Of course. Um, I want to kind of end the interview by asking you about your legacy that you're leaving behind you. Um, for most antique sets, but your collectibles are a staple of our library. Um, I wouldn't be able to do my job without them today. You're leaving, you're leaving behind a massive legacy that, for young collectors. How do you feel about that? I feel very excited again because I, I know how much my life has been enriched by collecting mm -hmm. and by finding out about things, by gaining that knowledge. I mean, it's a lovely thing to walk into an antiques fair. I mean, I, I walked into an antiques fair a week ago and there was a very boring Worcester 18th century saucer um, transfer printed with the fence pattern, which is really common, mm -hmm. worth about £20. And I paid £150 for it. <laughs> Why did I? Because on the back, there's the most famous Worcester mark, which is a man in the moon mark, yeah. which is so rare. Mm -hmm. And so I've now got that displayed just with the mm -hmm. mark on it. But that's the sort of thing, the joy you get out of collecting. Of course. Like my Stenet Wilson candlesticks, I'm always looking for a different size, size. and a different colour. Yeah. And you know, if I find one, it makes my day. And that's mm. what I hope, that there'll be lots of other collectors, younger collectors coming along, who'll get the same amount of enjoyment in doing things like that. So that was the fascinating Judith Miller. Thank you for downloading and listening to the first ever episode and let me know what you're thinking either via Twitter with the hashtag tea and cake with or on Facebook where you can find me at Tommy Lloyd Baker. Next month we will be questioning the lady whose career started in 1979 at Sotheby's. She has worked on some of the UK's biggest historic and landmark auctions including selling that famous Kate Middleton dress for 78000 Tune in to find out about Lady Diana's dress, her opinions on the cult celebrity and her love and passion for costume and textiles. Thank you again for listening, and this has been Tea and Cake with Judith Miller.